Hi, welcome to What Chance. I'm your host, Karin Elias. This podcast is about people who have been to prison. It's about their life before and after prison. I talk to educators, social workers, activists, and the formerly incarcerated. I want to find out what happened. Are some people at higher risk of going to prison? And what is it like to reintegrate into society? What does the justice system and society really care about? Punishment or rehabilitation? Come, join me. My guest today is Corey. He is a facilitator with AVP, the Alternatives to Violence Project. He has spent some time in prison and is now re-entering society. Hi, Corey. Welcome. Thank you for having me. How are you? How are you? I'm all right. Thank you. And I'm curious because I'm now a chosen New Yorker. Are you a New Yorker? I'm a native New Yorker, born ah. and raised. <laughs> Where did you grow up? I grew up in Queens, New York, in you know, Jamaica, Queens, in the Springfield Garden section. Nice little quiet neighborhood. Uh-huh. And when you were a child, do you remember something that you really liked doing? I love sports. That was big in my community. Sports, football, basketball, anything outdoors where we were having fun, those are the things that we liked. Do you have a favorite sport? My favorite sport to watch is football, but my favorite sport to play is basketball. Okay, nice. Also, so there are the good memories we have from our childhood, but sometimes there are also challenges we had faced. Like in your childhood, in your adolescent life, was there anything that was challenging and how did you deal with that? I think the biggest challenge for me was um, being different from all the kids growing up. I grew up as a Jehovah Witness, so um, we were taught to you know, not associate too closely with people who are not in that religion. So I grew up uh, kind of like in a shell. You know, I didn't really have too many friends, so to speak, although I had a few. But um, that taught me to distance myself from people. So at a young age, when I went through some abuses in the household, I was already accustomed to not telling people things or not sharing things. So I didn't, you know, come to my parents and tell them these things. So that led me you know, to run away from home at a very young age. So, you know, those are some of the toughest challenges that I think I faced as a child. Later on, life got more complicated naturally, but as a child, that was very tough to, you know, go through a situation like that, but then feel as if I couldn't express myself to my parents or I couldn't talk to any other kid that are not within the religion, so to speak. So, you know, it was challenging as a kid having to bottle all of those things up emotionally. Yeah. So if you didn't have anybody to go to, what did you do? I ran away from home and I thought I could make it on my own, but it just so happens that when I ran away, it was the middle of winter and it happened to be a snowstorm. Um, and I was actually sleeping in the back of a supermarket and a guy from the neighborhood came by and he saw me and he, you know, gave me an opportunity to have a place to stay and some money in my pocket. You know, basically he wanted me to sell drugs as a 13-year-old kid that didn't have anywhere else to go and felt I couldn't go back home, you know, I, I took that as an opportunity for myself, and that's how I dealt with it. Eventually, that's what led to my involvement and lifestyle with the streets and criminal activity. 
at some point you ended up in prison. How old were you then? Well, the first time I ended up in prison, I was 15. I actually went to Rikers Island because I tried to give the officers a fake name and told them I was 17, hoping they would let me go. So they actually sent me to Rikers Island at 15 years old, and that was my first time in prison. How, how was that? Uh, it was horrifying because, again, I had to put on a persona. You know, you're taught that when you go to prison, you have to be tough and you can't show weakness and you can't be labeled as prey. So now I had to put on a persona of a tough guy, and I wasn't a tough guy. I was just a normal little kid going through some tragedies in life. But now I had to put on this persona, and in order to act tough, you got to commit certain activities and do certain things so that it's believable. So it's like my, my whole frame of mind and my thinking at that age was so misconstrued and twisted, thinking I you know knew what was best for myself at that young age, that it just led me into more trouble and more trouble, uh, trouble outside of prison, trouble inside of prison. It, it was just hard. That's, it's hard to deal with it at that age. Yeah, I think that's a tough age, no matter what happens in your life, because you're still searching, right? You're not a child, you're not an adult, you're in between, and you would need some guidance. And, and, and the scary part about that is that, you know, all children go through that, but at that age where you really don't know, but you don't want to ask for the guidance because you think you know what's best for yourself. You know, that's a dangerous combination. Yeah. And then when you got out of Rikers, you didn't feel like you got much guidance to handle life better. At that time, there weren't many programs, especially for adolescents. Uh, there were no programs. Uh, there was no mandatory school where I can get my GED. Although eventually I did manage to get my GED in prison but it wasn't mandatory. So it's like you go to prison, you're around other criminals and misguided young kids, and there's nothing left to do but get in trouble. So you really, I really didn't learn anything at that point of my prison stage. So it's like coming out, I just came out uh, tougher, thinking I was smarter, you know, than I was when I went in. Okay, I won't get caught because I won't do it like this no more. So, you know, it was just the recidivism waiting to happen, so to speak. Yeah. And then so you did get caught again and you ended up in a different prison or did you go back to Rikers? Rikers is the um, it's like the processing prison when you first get arrested uh, while you're awaiting trial until you get sentenced. I was in and out of jail all of my adolescent life. Um, when I was 17, I went up state to the state correctional facility for the first time and I had a simple drug charge. So they gave me one and a half years to four and a half years, depending on my behavior. Um, but again, while I was in prison, I was getting into more trouble, committing crimes in prison and getting new charges for them while I was in prison. So I was fortunate I was young and they ran all of my cases concurrent. But nevertheless, I still didn't learn anything because here it is. I was getting into so much trouble, but there was no real discipline. You know, you took me from the streets where I was selling drugs because I didn't have no place to stay. And here it is, you just gave me three hots in a cup. The same thing that I was looking for in the beginning. To me, in my mind, hey, this is nothing. I got free meals. I got a place to stay. You know, I wasn't into girls so much at that time because I was young. So, you know, it was nothing to me, so to speak. You know, but I didn't realize the psychological and emotional effects it would have on me so many years later down the line. In my teenage years, that was the most time that I did the uh, one and a half years, then I came home on parole. 
I would go back and forth to jail for like maybe 60 days here, 90 days there. Uh, but it wasn't until 2007 that um, I was arrested for a serious case. While I was arrested and in prison for that case, four months later, I was rearrested for a case that actually happened when I was 16, back in 1996. But due to, um, they didn't have any evidence at the time, they couldn't charge me with. But in 2007, when I got arrested, four months later in 2008, they came and rearrested me for the crime that happened in 1996. And that's how I wind up doing the last prison sentence that I did. I did 12 years and I'm still on parole. Um, and I've been home for two years now, you know, and I look back and I reflect on my life, specifically the criminal side of it. I look at what led me to it, what I learned inadvertently, but didn't realize until so many years later. But all along, I had opportunities. I had people in my life who could have helped and guided me in that direction. But as I said, I was young, naive, and I wasn't looking for that. There's definitely opportunities, and that's why I work with ABP and I work with other youth programs because there's so many young men and women out here who are headed down that path. And there's a chance that someone can catch them and, and, and save them, but unless everybody tries, if I try, I might, it might not work with me. But maybe if you talk to them, Karen, you know, you may be able to get to them because those people were there in my life, but I didn't recognize them. You know, and, and unfortunately, as a young man, making all those decisions, especially after you make one bad decision, it's very easy to make the next one. Very easy. Because you have the sense of, oh, well, I, I already did this. You know, so it's like my way of thinking. I think that's the biggest thing when it comes to uh, men in prison and men who and women who are on the path to prison. It's not that they're criminals at heart, but it's the way that we think through our experiences that we went through in our life, by what we was taught, by what we saw, by what we heard. And then we put that together into our own interpretation. And unless we have those people around us, like parents, aunts, uncles, teachers, and you know that social network of people who are gonna be on top of you to guide you, sometimes we make those decisions on our own and it doesn't fare well for a lot of us, especially young black men in America today. So if it didn't work for you when you were young, something happened, though, that made you change. Was that AVP? AVP was one of the catalysts in my change. Change, I believe, can only come when that person is truly ready and willing. It's like, a, for instance, someone who smokes cigarettes. They can try the patch. They can try all type of different things. But unless they're really willing and ready, to quit smoking, they're not gonna quit. And it's the same thing that I say about everybody's life. When you're, you're ready to change, you'll change. During this last incarceration of the 12 years, I made up in my mind, you know, I was praying to God. You know, you make a foxhole prayer, you know, when you get in trouble, now you wanna pray. But I was praying. I said, God, listen, if you get me around this, I'll do whatever you want. I'll turn my life around. I was very fortunate and blessed, Karen, because the time that I was facing, I didn't nearly get as much of that. I, like I said, I only did 12 years and I had some very serious charges, but I wound up doing 12 years. But during that time, 
when I was sentenced to that 12 years, I knew him. Well, actually, I was sentenced to nine and a half years to 19. But uh, when I went for my first parole, but I was denied, and they gave me an additional two years. In the very beginning, when I got the initial sentence, I already knew and realized that I got a second chance and I got an opportunity. And then I started thinking, I had a four-year-old daughter and a three-year-old son that I left out there. What is my son going to do? Is he going to grow up fatherless now with no guidance and following my footsteps? So these are the things that was crossing my mind. So I made up the decision for myself that, listen, I'm going to do what I have to do within these prison walls. There might not be a lot of programs, but whatever programs there are, I'm going to seek them out and I'm going to reach out to them. I'm going to try to find out how they can help me and how I can better myself. And that's what I did. So when I got involved with AVP, I actually had took an AVP class on one of my former incarcerations, but I wasn't ready to change. So when I reconnected with them on this last incarceration, I took it serious. And their guiding principles um, centered around violence and peaceful uh, resolution, but it gives you so many uh, life values and life principles that you can apply to various areas of your life. So that was definitely one of the catalysts that helped me while I was in prison. There were several things that I did. You know, it wasn't just one area that I centered around. If I had to focus on changing my thinking, I had to think different with everything. I couldn't think, okay, well, let me wake up and go to the yard and exercise because that was normal. I had to think, well, let me wake up and go to the law library or let me wake up and, and go to this program and let me wake up and do something different. I had to change everything different about me. So AVP helped me in doing that by not only taking their workshops, but then becoming a facilitator. Because even as a facilitator, I'm still learning in every session. Every individual is different. They have different experiences. And just listening to the stories and struggles of other people and what they went through and how they had to overcome adversity and how they still haven't overcome out adversity, you know, it, it strengthened me. It helped me to think different because the advice I would give to them, I now have to give to myself. That's just one of the programs that I was involved that really helped me in my change. And just, I want to clarify, because you said as a facilitator, you were still learning because AVP works in a way that there are exercises and everybody does those exercises, not just the participants, right? So that's why even as facilitators, the learning keeps going exactly. on. Yeah. So you did those things, you decided you wanted to change your life and you managed that. And so now that you are back outside within society, how does that feel? Well, it feels good to have freedom, to be able to do things at my own leisure, at my own will, even though I'm still on parole supervision. It feels great that I'm able to see my family, talk to my family, physically embrace my family. Um, it feels good, but there's a lot of stresses and a lot of adversities that come with it. Um, the biggest struggle, I guess, would be wrestling with um, your old self and knowing how things could be or knowing how much money you could have or knowing what you could have or knowing what struggles you might not have if you only did this. You know, so it's like living a, a totally different life. So that's, it's like a newborn baby. You got to learn how to walk. You got to learn how to talk. You have to learn everything all over again. Like last year was the first year I ever filed taxes in my life. Didn't know what I was doing, but it felt good to be able to say, okay, I'm doing things different now. I'm doing things the right way, the, the legal way. So even with the stresses and adversities, 
the feeling is great. I wouldn't change it. My best day in prison beats my worst day in it, out here anytime. Yeah. And do you feel that with these challenges that you have some support that helps you deal with this? I do. I believe that this time around, that's one of the things that helped stop my recidivism because before I didn't have the support system. When I came home, it was like, okay, you're, you're home, but you didn't have the family support. You don't have positive friend support. So what are you left to do, but go back to that criminal lifestyle. But this time around, it was different. Um, I had my family here to support me. Um, I had a wonderful group of people in AVP um, that was here to support me. And, you know, it was just a, a network of people who were there to support someone coming home in their transition. And I think that's very important for all men and women coming out of prison system, having that support system that'll help them in their transition. And so you said that you have been out for two years now. And I'm just curious because, you know, people are talking a lot about, well, the justice system, what is it like inside of prison? What is rehabilitation? Like, is there rehabilitation? And then when people come back out, does your sentence really end? Is your life like everybody else's? Absolutely not. One thing about a criminal mind and a career criminal, there is rehabilitation, but it's just like any other memory that you have. Like, let's say, take your life for instance. There's a memory, there's thousands of memories that you have from your childhood that you'll never forget, ever. And it's the same thing with someone who has lived their life. You'll never forget. So if someone bumps into me in a store, and they turn around to me and say, what's your problem? The first thing that goes through my mind is that first memory of when I was a criminal to approach that aggressiveness with aggressiveness. But then I have to think about what I've been through, what I stand to lose and what's the point of it. So that's the biggest struggle. Struggling with who you used to be versus you know who you have to be and who you trying to be. The transition from coming out of prison is actually harder than the transition while you're in prison. Because when I went to my parole board, I had a parole packet laid out that laid out my life in detail about what I would do when I got out and I would get this job and I would do this. And I met all my goals, Cameron, don't get me wrong. Everything I said that I would do, I did. But what I wasn't prepared for was the emotional effect that it would have on me, the stress that I would have placed upon me. Because now I went from three hots in the cot, no rent, no food bills, no utility bills, to I have rent, food bills, utility bills, have to take care of your children. It's a lot that comes with it. At one point, I was working two jobs, two full-time jobs. Had zero time for myself, barely time to sleep between getting back and forth from the jobs just to try to maintain the rent, you know, and, and other bills. That transition alone brings so much stress because you become overwhelmed by things. You're not used to having these pressures on. On the inside, you don't have no problems. If I want to sleep late, I sleep late. I'm not going to lose my job. I'm not going to get fired. Out here, I can't do that. So all of those little things, when you're making the transition, it's like you're really starting your rehabilitation now. This is where to start. Because everything that you said in theory sounded good on paper, but now dealing with the problems and adversities that come with them, it was a whole different story. So there was times within this last two years that I hit a real low emotionally and spiritually and was ready to just tap out. But the memories and experiences of what I had, of what I went through, of what I'm trying to accomplish, of my sons who I'm trying to steer from my path, 
all of those things, you know, help me to, you know, bounce back and get to the place that I'm at now and again. But it's a real struggle. People think that coming out of prison, especially after serving long periods of time, is an easy adjustment. That's because we don't realize the psychological effects it has on us until we're about to hit that rock bottom or that low. Yeah, and I would assume the longer you are inside, the harder it gets because you are away from how society runs. Yeah. And so being on parole, is that part of helping you adjust? As I said, there's always people and systems that can help you, but it's about how much you take advantage of it. Parole is there for supervision. They're supposed to help you with things like finding employment, uh, getting ID cards, driving. They're there to help you with all of those things. But unless you search it out, they're not just going to embrace every convict coming home and say, hey, let me get you everything that you need to become successful because they're overwhelmed. It's not their fault. They're, they're overwhelmed with their cases. I've been fortunate enough that I've had two parole officers since I've been out. And I can say both of them have helped me tremendously. My parole officer now, Anything that I need help with uh, regarding, um, you know, just readjusting out here with different organizations and departments, whether it's motor vehicle or whatever it is, he's there to help. And so if you could change something within the system of re-entry, do you have any ideas what you would do? What would you want to be different? Re-entry is so broad because there's so many um, factors to it. You have reentry programs that only help you with housing or employment and things like that. But the biggest thing for me, as I said, when it comes to reentry is the emotional and psychological treatment that men and women coming out of prison really need. Because as much as I thought that I was um, a sociable person, I'm not really a sociable person because I don't know how to be sociable in this community. See, I'm used to when you walk past people in the mess hall or in the dining room, you don't speak and you don't say nothing because tensions can rise and it can, things like that. But when you're in society, I can't just walk past my neighbor and not say hello, you know, but I'm so accustomed to that that I will walk right past my neighbor. You know, then the, now the neighbors look at me as if I'm antisocial. And it's not that, but that's just the environment I was accustomed to. So as much as we might think that, you know, there was no psychological damage and we're ready to function out here in society, we're really not. Unfortunately, some of us come out thinking that we are. And when we hit that rock bottom or that low, and we don't know how to deal with it any other way than the old way that we dealt with it, that's what we revert back to. And that's why the recidivism rate is so high, because they have so many jobs. I've had so many jobs in the last week. I've turned down jobs. I've quit jobs. There's many job opportunities. There's many opportunities to go to school. There's many ways to get a house. But until you fix your mind and adjust to living in a different environment, because a prison environment is not a normal environment, but it becomes normal to you while you're in there since you've been in it so long. So that, that's normal to you. So now when you come back out here into society or into the free world, now it's not normal to me. Seeing people say hello and smile is not normal to me, you know? So those are things that I think when it comes to reentry, more emphasis and focus should be placed on that. Because like I said, it's easy to get the financial things, the house, the job, the school. It's easy to get those. There's so many programs in place for that. Everybody's focusing on that. But really dealing with or showing men how to deal with and women how to deal with the 
psychological effects that it's had on you since you've been in there and helping them to set up these um, support systems through their family, positive support groups and therapy groups and things like that. Those are the things that I think help to keep people who are coming out of prison out of prison. Just to understand this, when you have a parole officer, this is not necessarily the person who gives you access to all of this. You have to actually look for all of that. This is what parole does. They tell you that you have to either be working or in some type of schooling program, right? You can take it upon yourself to find your own school or your own job, or you can leave it to them. When you leave it to them, they refer you to usually is two out of three programs, a program called Fortune Society and another program called CEO. They'll send you to one of those two programs where they offer schooling, housing, and all those things. But that keeps your options little. That keeps you boxed in. But if you get up on your own and say, okay, I'm going to find this school on my own because this is the craft, skill, or trade that I want to go into, or you can sit back and wait on parole. Me, I didn't sit back and wait on, on anybody. Before I even was released, I already had a school that I was enrolled in that I was going to. Before I even finished the school, I already had a job that I went out and found on my own. I didn't wait for them to help me with the uh, job employment program that they had. I went and found my own job. And that's how I've been doing it since I've been out. Every job that I've had, and I've had four since I've been out, I went and got myself. Parole is there to help you with those things. But the parole officer is not going to make any extra money if he gets you in a program. He's not going to make any less money if he doesn't get you in a program. So there's no motivation for him or her. The motivation got to be from yourself. You have to want those things. Yeah. And so when you did go and get a job on your own, did you find that it was an issue for your employer that you had been incarcerated or did it not matter? Well, I went into construction and with construction, they don't care what your past was as long as you can physically work. Now, going into other areas and other jobs, that's a little different because then you have to go through the background checks. Um, it was many jobs that I was turned down from, you know, but I still applied for them because the, the most they can say is no, and I don't lose anything. But there was many jobs I was turned down for because of my background. Um, one job, um, a matter of fact, it was Amazon. I applied to work for Amazon, and it took them six months to tell me no. They wanted me to send them in um, copies of my court records, things I did while in prison to rehabilitate myself and everything that I'm doing now since I've been out. You know, went through a long process. They still deny me. But for every 15 jobs that I got denied, I got accepted for one. And then now I had options to either take this job or take that job or turn down it. I opened up my options. I applied for everything. So is it a, 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 a hindrance of having a criminal record when it comes to finding employment when you come out? A small one, because if you want a job, you'll get a job. Now, if you're picky, say, oh, I want to work behind a desk for $18 an hour, but you don't want to flip burgers at McDonald's for $18 an hour, that's on you. You had the opportunity, but this opportunity is out here for everybody. I can't agree with, you know, it's a big hindrance. It's a small hindrance. It is. You just have to have that motivation and that drive to go get it. And how was then the issue with housing? Did you find housing because of your family? When I was paroled, I was, and again, this is a, a big thing, having that support network. My parents owned a house up here in New York, although they lived out of state, they still owned the house up here. So I was able to stay there. I stayed there for the first seven months that I was home. Um, so I was blessed to have that. I didn't have to worry about rent 
and bills and things like that. Then, as I said, um, once I completed the school, before I even completed, I already had a job. And I started working, saved up enough money. Then I went and I got my own apartment. It's challenges with everything. Even the person who has never committed a crime in their whole life, they still have to do the same thing. They have to get up, find a job, get the job, save money. You know, they have the same challenges that we face. You know, like I said, being that we didn't have these problems inside, we didn't have to worry about these things. We didn't have to deal with the stress that come along with it too. So coming out now that we mentally know how to deal with the problem, but emotionally we wasn't prepared for the stresses that came along with it because we didn't have to deal with it. The biggest issue for me was the uh, emotional and psychological side of it. You know, finding a job, it wasn't hard for me. Keeping a job wasn't hard for me. Getting school wasn't hard for me. Housing wasn't hard for me. But it's the stresses that come along with attaining and maintaining these things that overwhelms you sometimes because frankly, we're just not used to dealing with. What might be an everyday uh, a life issue in your life that's really not a big deal because you've been dealing with it every day, it might be something major for me because I'm not used to dealing with it, you know? So it affects us differently. That's why I said for people dealing with re-entry, they can't neglect that side of it. You know, you can't think you could just uh, form a criminal, a job making $20 an hour when he used to making $1,000 a day. You can't give him a $20 an hour job in an apartment and expect him to be happy or her to be happy because emotionally they're like, this ain't what I'm used to. This is something different. Yeah. And you mentioned recidivism before because what you're describing, I can understand why if there isn't that emotional support and somebody hasn't done that work, it's a lot easier to fall back into the life before because that's not the same stress, right? right. You know, you also mentioned that when you were really young, you weren't ready to hear those messages or receive the people that might have helped you. Do you have any idea, is there something society can do and implement so that we don't have to let you know, our young people struggle like that? And can we prevent them from going to prison? Well, I think for me, the people who are trying to intervene in my life at that time, I felt that they couldn't understand or relate to what I was experiencing and going through at that age, you know, because I felt that um, they weren't from the criminal life or street life, so they wouldn't understand what I was into and what I was doing or why I was doing it. To answer the question, one thing that could be implemented in, in helping today, if I have a criminal record such as I do, right, I can't go into the public schools or the high schools and talk to the kids. They won't let me do that because of my criminal record. But then you'll create programs like the Scared Straight program for the kids who are at risk of going to jail because maybe they got arrested. Now you want me to talk to these kids. But by then it might be too late because for me it was too late. I was already stuck in my thinking that nobody could understand, nobody cared. And now that I've already committed this crime, I might as well keep going. Whereas if you take formerly incarcerated or people who were formerly in that lifestyle but have not only changed their life, but shown effective change in their life and demonstrated that to the community and society, use these people. Let them go into these schools. Let them talk to these children. Don't shun them or, or bar them because of you know, what they did in the past. Because if that's the case, then your criminal justice system is a, is a false. It's a lie. Because you say, I'm rehabilitated. That's why you released me. But now you say, I'm, oh, I'm not rehabilitated enough to 
work with this group of people or come into this establishment or this organizational administration, you know? But when really me getting into trouble started off long before I got into any criminal element. It started off with the acting up in school, getting into fights and getting, it started off with those little things, which a lot of parents say, oh no, my son is a good kid. He's just going through something. Yeah, you're right. He's going through something, all right. But we minimize it because it's so typical and so common, especially in black communities where the young boys get into school fights, they get suspended. It's common. So it gets minimized. But really it could be something more lying under the sun. Why is he fighting? You know, why is he regularly doing this? Why is he always, you know, and these are the things that somebody like myself can see and recognize. I talk to both my sons, right? And the way that I talk to my sons, when I talk to them as grown men, they're 16 and 19. And the reason why I talk to them as grown men is because when they're out here in these streets, the police are going to treat them like grown men. The stereotype that they carry with them as black men, they'll be treated as grown men. They're not going to be shown any common courtesy. So I talk to them straight. They know my experience through and through in detail. And I remind them every day. When I see things that they're doing, I point it out to them. My oldest son just went through something. And before it even happened, I said, listen, I already see where this is headed. This is what's going to happen. And within a few months span time, that's exactly what happened. Because I recognize these things. I see it. And I don't see them in everybody. And just because I see them doesn't mean I can stop them just because I've been through it. You know, I'm not saying I'm the one that can get through to my sons or anybody else's sons. But I can recognize these things. And that's what we got to focus on. We have to focus on not how so many Black men ended up incarcerated. The how is not the issue. We, we figured out the how. Already. We know how the system is set up. But it starts before them kids even get to the system. Those kids weren't in the system at 8, 9, 10 through 14. They weren't in the system then. They were just young kids under the tutelage of the parents, the aunts, the uncles, the community. And that's where it starts at. You know, they say uh, it takes a village to raise a child. That's not the case no more. That's, it's every man for himself, every mother for themselves, and, and you don't see that anymore. So with no guidance, what do you see? You, you see the kids looking, they're on social media all day. That's where they're getting their information from. That's where they're getting everything that they're learning now is coming from online. There's no more interaction with mom and dad taking them here so they can experience this. There's no more of that. Everything's online and, and not just from COVID, before COVID. These kids are, are glued to their phone. Social media is the new normal. It's so many different variants to why people end up in prison. But it's all broken down to the individual child and who's around him. That's going to determine whether or not he's successful or not. It's, it's really not even up to the child anymore. It's up to whatever fortune or misfortune that child is born into. Because whoever he's around, whoever is influencing him or structuring him, they're the ones who are literally shaping and directing his life. So if he's growing up and his parents are, and I'm, it's not a knock on rap music or anything, but if his parents are all into rap music in the street life, well, what is the kid nine times out of 10 going to grow up to be into? He's not going to grow up and say, hey, I like country music. You know, so it's the same thing with anything. Like whatever that child is surrounded by or whatever happens during that child's life, that's pretty much, there's no one answer on why we go to prison. And I hear that so much. They say, oh, we got to fix this. So we got to fix. It's so many things that have to be fixed. But there's no one reason why a person turns to a life of crime or turns to committing a crime. 
Anybody who said they got all the answers, I'm not even going to listen to them because I know nobody got all the answers. Yeah, that would be easy, right? We would have done it already. Uh, so it really sounds like we need to restructure our communities. Maybe we have lost that like you had mentioned, and I, I grew up similarly, like if I went somewhere and I did something and none of my family was around, they found out anyway, because everybody talked to everybody, but we don't have those communities. So to wait for the criminal justice system to fix it is too late, you're saying. So we really need to involve people differently. And maybe we need to change this perception of, you know, maybe punishment isn't the right reaction to somebody doing something we as adults don't want. Maybe there is a different way of, like you said, we have to ask, why are you doing this? And you know, what is the root cause for this behavior? So it's it's definitely complex. It doesn't mean it can't be done, right? We can certainly start. And I don't know how you feel about this, but in addition to all of this, it makes a difference if somebody is white, brown, or black in the US, right? So and there have been, not that this is a new movement, people who were in it knew this all along, but because of the pandemic, it seemed like more people are listening. And I would say more white people are listening because we do need them to understand what life is for somebody who's not white. Do you think that we are at a point where maybe we can tackle some of these issues? When it comes to this particular issue, as far as the differences between, especially with the races, with you say, you know, you said more people are listening. I think it can get better, but it's never going to change because it's always going to be a minority people. It's always going to be a group of people who are overlooked or mistreated more than others. This is just a historical fact from the beginning of. Any historical civilization that you can look at is just been a fact. That's just human nature, so to speak. But I think that it can get better. And it gets better through, I'm not naming any particular movements because I don't put myself inside of any movements, but it's getting better through some of the movements that are taking place now. You know, some of the groups and organizations that are act out there now, um, politically and, you know, non-politically, they're doing things that are raising awareness and causing change. But change for us as, you know, Black people and equality and reality, it means a change for white people too. Because now certain things that they were used to that were, say, exclusively white are no longer that, you know? So it's a change for both sides, you know? And it's going to be felt favorably and unfavorably on both sides. So I don't even like to put myself in the middle of that. Like I said, I think it can get better but it's never going to change because it's always going to be that group of people that's mistreated right now. And for years now, the focus has been on the African-American community, you know, but the Hispanic community has been mistreated as well. You know, the Latino community, you know, so it's, it's always going to be that. I, I like to think more small scale. What can I do as an individual to help the next individual around me? Whether I know you or I don't know you, what can I do to help? Not necessarily financially, but maybe my knowledge or, or just me being able to listen, whatever I could do, that works. Whether it's dealing with a racial issue or dealing with a personal issue from someone that's close to me or co, it doesn't matter. Whatever I can do on, on a smaller scale, working with AVP, things like that. I think those are the things that affect true change. It's not about 
a law being passed or a prison reform. Okay, you want to treat prisoners better in prison. Okay, but what's the trade-off? Maybe, maybe he won't get tired of being in prison. Maybe because you know he got good food, a nice soft mattress. Maybe he's comfortable in that. It's a trade-off. So you got to ask yourself: You want prison reform? You want this taken away, this taken away, that taken away? But what are you putting in place that's going to fill that void and balance that out? Yeah, and what you said before about you know there's always going to be discrimination somebody is always going to be at the end of the ladder i think history shows that in all over the world there's always somebody in power right we have to i guess accept that we could be the majority or the minority that's somewhat chance the only thing we can really do is focus on personal development that's where it starts from in my opinion personal development because if i didn't make this decision to change myself and start myself, there wouldn't even be any way possible I could try to talk to my sons to affect any type of change in them. Especially if I didn't change. Picture me coming home back to the criminal life and telling my sons not to be a criminal. Like I said, that's one of my motivations for staying positive and uh, not reverting back to criminal elements and keeping you know, a steady legal job. With my sons, they see how much opportunities and money may be out here in the criminal life. And they see how much less I'm making from that. So hopefully they can see that and say, okay, well, why would he sacrifice making less money than this? You know, maybe that'll spark some, who knows? But at least I know I tried. I can't say, you know, I can't come home, like I said, back in the criminal life and trying to teach them not to be a criminal. So now that I'm not in the criminal life and I'm showing them, listen, there's a way to make it outside of that criminal element. It's definitely a way. As a kid, sometimes making that decision of what's the best way for you to go, you might not have that guidance around you. Or even if you do have that guidance, you still think you know what's the best way for you to go. And a lot of times that doesn't fare so well for kids. But for me, it's one day at a time, one problem at a time. Yeah. And thinking about your kids, so how old are they now? And what is it you like to do with them? What do they like to do? <laughs> all these kids like the same thing, money. <laughs> That's the only thing they like. Money, money, money. One thing about me, I love spending time with my kids. Me coming home after missing so much time out of their life, it was a very strange relationship. Like we would spend time together, but there was no connection, you know, because we were separated for so many years. You know, 12 years is a long time to miss out of an adult's life. But to miss it from a kid's life who barely even can remember you, there was no emotional connection there. So that has been and is still my biggest obstacle with, with three of my, I have four children, with three of my kids, that's still somewhat of a, a, a struggle of um, making that connection where, you know, we have that bond where we can call each other regularly and, and you know, it's comfortable and it's no problem. You know, we don't have that yet. My youngest daughter, Fortunately, you know, we, we've been able to establish a, a bond and connection, but I definitely can't fault the kids, you know, because it's 100% my fault. It's just hard connecting with, and they're 19, 18, and 16. They're pretty much grown, sort of, you know, and formulated their own opinions and their minds and their own viewpoints. And all I can do now is give it time and, you know, let the future develop. You know, it's all a part of the 
re-entry isn't just re-entry into society. You got to re-enter personal lives, personal relationships. And that's hard to do, especially when you don't know a person. You don't know their habits. You know, it's sort of like dating, except when you dating this person, just and you see something you don't like, it's your kid. You can't just say, hey, I don't want to date no more. It's things that I'm sure they see about me that they don't understand or maybe don't like, don't agree with. But this is all a part of, you know, us, me re-entering their life, you know. I came and disrupted their normal. You seem to be a really strong person. You have a good head on your shoulders. You're insightful, very determined. And, you know, I thank you very much for sharing and being so open about your experience. And I certainly wish you the best with, you know, your relationships with your family and with your kids. Thank you, Karen. I appreciate that. Thank you. What Chance is created in New York with cover art by Hernan Braberman and original music by Max Elias. <laughs>